Well, you know, last week I ran across an online article from Christianity Today, and it was uh, interesting, and uh, it was encouraging, but it was also a bit discouraging. The article, and you can find this if you Google it, you can uh, uh, Google it, the article is entitled, Coronavirus Searches Lead Millions to Hear About Jesus, and that, of course, is very, very uh, encouraging. The lead line reads, millions of worried people who have turned to Google with their anxiety over COVID-19 have ended up connecting with Christian evangelists in their search results, leading to a spike in online conversions in March. In the Philippines, a woman named Grace found herself on a website about coronavirus fear hosted by the internet evangelism organization Global Media Out. Uh, outreach. Please help me not to worry about everything, she wrote uh, to a, a volunteer counselor. What's happening now is very confusing, and the counselor explained that only Jesus can bring lasting peace, and Grace received Jesus as her Savior. Back in the U.S., a volunteer at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association chatted online with a young mother named Brittany who worried that COVID-19 would take her life and her children's lives. And the volunteer offered hope and peace, and Brittany, too, accepted Christ. Uh, the article goes on to say that three of the largest online evangelism ministries, Global Media Outreach, Billy Graham Association, and Crew account cumulatively for at least 200 million gospel presentations on the internet each year. All three say the number of people seeking online information about knowing Jesus has increased since the COVID-19 outbreak was declared a pandemic in early March. Between mid-March and late March, GMO saw a 170% increase in clicks on search engine ads about finding hope, clicks on ads about fear increased 57%, and about worry 39%. The ministry's 12.4 million gospel presentations in March represented a 16% increase over the average month in 2019, same month last year. Franklin Graham says that thousands of Americans have, a, have called a 24-7 COVID-19 prayer line that they've recently begun, and more good news, most churches tracking online attendance reported higher than average views. Overall, online attendance was 8% higher than in-person attendance before COVID-19. In a survey taken on April 6, 44% of pastors said their attendance online has been much higher than normal. 29% uh, said actually much higher. 24 said slightly higher, according to the Barna Group. But, adds the Christianity Today article, and here's the discouraging part. Only a fraction of those who come to faith online engage in follow-up discussions or report joining a local church. So it's interesting, it's encouraging, but a bit discouraging all at the same time. Now, my point is, this present crisis is causing many, many unchurched people to be more interested in Jesus, to come seeking Jesus. They want to see Jesus. They want to see if he can help them through this crisis, and they're seeking him through online evangelistic ministries and online church services. So here's my question. What do people need to see in Jesus that can make 
a lasting difference in their lives. What do you and I need to see in Jesus that can make a difference in our daily lives? That's the question. Now, by the way, if you're new to Fellowship Greenville, we are so glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. We've found over the last uh, month or so that many of you are joining us from all around the country and, uh, and all around the world. Uh, last week, I think, it, we had folks online from the UK, France, Japan, Brazil, India, and we're so glad that you're worshiping with us. Uh, it's, it's, it's really cool to have an international community joining with us today. And one of the things that we want you to know about us is that on Sunday mornings, you'll find us studying our way through whole books of the Bible, and we're currently in the study in the Gospel of John. We've come to John chapter 12, which records for us what happened in the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus knows that in just a few days, he's going to be murdered. Uh, so this is the final week, the final days of his life, and everything that he says and he does from now on in John's gospel, he does in the shadow of the cross. So let's read the story together. Open your Bible to John chapter 12 and look down to verse 20. I still love my paper and ink Bible, and you might be like, hey, I'm a modern person. I really don't do much with paper and ink anymore. I'm more of a screen and font person. That's fine. Just grab your device, your smartphone, uh, go to your favorite Bible app. If you don't have one, I recommend uh, version's The Bible app. Uh, favorite app or just Google John 12, 20 to 26, and follow along as I read. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the New Testament. Now, verse 20. Now, among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So it's Passover time, and most scholars say there would be over a million people in Jerusalem for this great feast, this great celebration. And I mean, you need to think about it. The, the, the atmosphere is electrifying. It's like the Super Bowl or the World Cup. And so in Jerusalem, there's lots of fervor. There's lots of buzz, and not just about Passover, but about Jesus. In fulfillment of Zechariah's 500-year prophecy, the 500-year-old prophecy, Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey to the adoring hosannas of thousands of fans who are calling him the new king of Israel. And what they wanted was a national political king, a, a, a national political deliverer. And when they're crying out, Hosanna, uh, they're crying out, save us now. They want Jesus to be their king. They want Jesus to be 
uh, their national and political savior. In our day, it would be like Jesus coming to town and we're wanting him to run for president. Uh, I mean, after all, who, who wouldn't vote for him? He took a little boy's lunch and fed over 5,000 people, not once, but, but uh, twice. He gives food away. That's a great social program. And he heals people. That's free health care with no deductibles. And he brings dead people back to life. I mean, who wouldn't vote for Jesus? So these people are more interested in the political than the spiritual. And when you think about it, that's still true today, isn't it? I mean, most people today care more about the political than the spiritual, and uh, what's a little discouraging about that is it's, it seems to be as true in the church as it is in the world. I mean, be honest, how many of you have had your life overtaken by the political at the expense of the spiritual? H how many of you, the, the first thing you do in the morning, you turn on your TV or your phone and you check the news and then wonder why you're bummed out all day? Well, it's because there's no good news apart from the kingdom of God. What we need to do before we listen to the bad news is we need to open the Bible and read the good news. And we need to do it every morning before we start listening to the 24-7 news cycle on the coronavirus crisis and all the conflict that's going on in our culture and all around the world. We need to remind ourselves that our king is sitting on a throne in heaven and he's ruling over everything from galaxies to governments. We need to remind ourselves every single day there is no king but Jesus. There is no savior but Jesus. So the people in Jerusalem are saying, Jesus, you would be awesome at politics. But Jesus is saying, I didn't come for politics. I came for the spiritual. I didn't just come for one nation. I've come for all nations. I didn't just come to bless your nation. I came to bring in the kingdom of God that rules over every nation. No, Jesus says, I'm not here for political purposes. I'm here for spiritual purposes. And that's what he's saying. But he hasn't quite said that out loud yet. So there's lots of excitement, lots of anticipation, like what's gonna happen? Uh, when's the revolution gonna begin? Could this really be the time? Could this be the hour that God restores the kingdom to Israel? Everybody's pumped. But at the same time, Jesus has a bounty on his head. Now, if you went to the post office in Jerusalem, you'd find there a wanted poster with Jesus' face on it. And, uh, and there would be a reward promised. And Jesus knows that. But, and there's the picture right there. That's the wanted poster. And uh, Jesus knows that he's a wanted man. He knows he has a bounty on his head, but he's still willing to walk the painful path that lies ahead of him. So there are large crowds around Jesus, and they are waiting and watching to see what he'll do. And I can tell you right now, they were not practicing social distancing, even though some were wearing masks. Uh, but everyone wants to get as close to Jesus as they possibly can. Get the picture in your mind. Jerusalem is packed. The city is buzzing. The air is electric. The shadow of the cross lays across everything that's happening. And it's at this time that John tells us that some Greeks came to see Jesus. They came seeking Jesus. Now, these uh, Greeks, these Gentiles, were God-fearing men meaning that they 
admired the Jewish faith, its monotheism and its morality. And no doubt they've heard that Jesus is a miracle worker who just brought a dead man back to life. And they want to see what all the buzz is about. So they come to one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Philip, probably came to Philip because Philip is a Greek name, but they come to Philip and they say, sir, we would like to see Jesus. Is that possible? Could you make that happen for us? And now, if you think about it, though, it's like with this huge crowd all around Jesus, why wouldn't it be possible for them to see Jesus? I mean, why not just push and shove your way to the front of the line? Well, maybe because this crowd around Jesus, all the people are Jewish people, and also because Jesus has been focused on the nation of Israel. He even says on one occasion, I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. So these Greeks come asking to see Jesus up close and personal. All right, okay, but why is that significant? What is John the writer, uh, what is he trying to highlight by out of all the things they get to tell us, he tells us this in the final week of Jesus' life. Well, here's, here, here's the deal. The coming of the Greeks to Jesus is symbolic. They represent something Jesus said earlier in John chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep, meaning the lost sheep of Israel. But then he says, I have other sheep not of this fold. In John eleven fifty two, 52, John tells us that Jesus had to die for the nation of Israel, but also so he could gather into one people the children of God who were scattered abroad. Those are the Gentiles, all, everybody else except for the Jews. And uh, in John chapter 11, uh, verses 47 and 48, after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, the chief priests and Pharisees hold a council meeting, and they say, this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, the whole world will believe in him. So these Greeks coming to Jesus is John's way of telling us that the door of salvation is about ready to swing wide open to all nations. Or let me put it this way. John three sixteen tells us that Jesus came to be the savior of the world, and now the world was beginning to come to him. So this is significant because it's symbolic and it signals the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So these Greeks come to Philip and Philip goes to Andrew and both of them go to Jesus and they say, uh, there's some Greeks that are asking if they can meet you. And Jesus' answer well, in typical Jesus fashion, his answer is very strange. It's like Jesus totally ignores their request. It's something like you say to me, hey, Charlie, when do you think we're going to be able to come back together for Sunday worship? And, and I, I look away and say, you have to die in order to live. I mean, it, it, <laughs> that makes no sense. My answer seems totally disconnected from your question. So Andrew and Philip uh, say, uh, hey, Jesus, there are a bunch of Greeks here, and they want to see you. What do you think? And Jesus doesn't say, okay, fine, uh, bring them to me. He says, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What, what is that about? Well, this 
is a pivotal turning point in John's gospel. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I like how William Barclay puts it in his commentary on this verse. He says, there is hardly any passage in the New Testament which would come with such shock to those who heard it the first time as this one. It begins with a saying which everyone would expect, and it finishes with a series of sayings which were the last things that anyone would expect. Now, what does that mean? Well, when the crowds heard Jesus say that the time had come for him to be glorified, they're thinking, wow, this is it. Jesus is about to show his glory by overthrowing the Romans and restoring the kingdom back to Israel. They expected that at any moment now, all their hopes and dreams would come true. And in feeding that, to some extent, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which is his favorite way of referring to himself 70 or 80 times in the Gospels. And this title comes from Daniel chapter 7, and there the Son of Man is pictured as the conquering champion of God, the undefeatable world conqueror sent by God. So when Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, I imagine a gasp went through that crowd. This was the, the moment they had been waiting for for hundreds of years. This was the time of their national and political deliverance. But Jesus didn't mean by glorified what they meant. By glorified, they meant King Jesus would crush their enemies. But for Jesus, glorified meant that he would be crushed under the weight of our sins on the cross. For Jesus, glorified meant crucified. So the first sentence, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, would have excited the hearts of, of those who heard it. But when Jesus unfolds uh, uh, this next series of sayings, that, that would have left them totally perplexed and confused and bewildered. The triumphant path that they thought lay before them all of a sudden becomes a painful path leading to suffering and death, which, by the way, also comes from a prophecy in Daniel, Daniel 9, 26, where it says, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be put to death and have nothing. But those Jews, and really uh, the Jews never made the connection between the conquering champion of God in Daniel 7 and the anointed one being put to death in Daniel chapter 9. But here's the deal. With the coming of these Greeks, Jesus now knows that it is the will of his Father that in just a few days he will go to the cross and die in our place for our sins. He knows now the hour has come. He said on several occasions through the Gospel of John, my hour has not yet come. Now he knows it has come. Jesus knows both the Father's will and the Father's time, and he knows a painful path lay before him. He says in verse 27, which we'll get to next week, he says, now is my soul troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, I've come for this purpose. Father, glorify your name through my death. So again, Jesus knows he's days away from dying on the cross, days from dying in your place and my place for our sins. 
And Jesus knows his audience, and they know farming. And so he uses an illustration that they would all understand to tell them why he had to die. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I don't know if you ever did this when you were a kid, but I remember in the, uh, in the first or second grade, can't quite remember, but I remember my teacher, Mrs. Ryan, she said, okay, one day she said, okay, everybody get a styrofoam cup and write your name on it. And so we all did that. And then she said, now, and there was a bunch of potting soil there. She said, now go over and, and get some soil and, and fill your cup half up with dirt. And, uh, and, and we did that. And then she gave each of us a watermelon seed and she said, put it down in the cup push it down into the dirt about a half inch, put the dirt back over it, and then take that pitcher over there and pour a little bit of water in, not too much, but put some water in, and then take your cup and put it in the, on, on the windowsill. And we all did that. All of our little styrofoam cups with our names on them lined up across the wind, windowsill, and then we sang the watermelon song. How many of you know the watermelon song? Now, you can lift your hand at home, but I can't see you, but... You know how it, go, how it goes? It goes like this. Just plant a watermelon on my grave. Let the juice trickle through. Just plant a little watermelon on my grave. That's all I ask of you. Now, southern fried chicken is mighty fine, but I prefer a watermelon vine. So plant a watermelon on my grave. Let the juice trickle through. Now, actually, I think that would have worked better if you had been here this morning, but Anyway, I, I remember as a, as a little boy, we put the, we sang the song, we put the uh, the cups on the window seal, and then and then I, you know I was impatient. I, I mean, every time we would take a little break, I would run over and I would look in the cup, and I would and nothing was happening. I would think this is this is just stupid. This doesn't work, and I kept going and checking, but nothing was happening. And then the next day, I remember getting to school. They open the I op, they open the door, and I run over to the window. Nothing. I mean, I was expecting a huge vine full of big, juicy watermelons, but day after day, it was nothing after nothing. Then one day I come in, and it's like, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a little sprout. Look at that. The seed uh, died, and life was coming out of the ground. And then after a few more days, the teacher let us take our sprouts home and plant them in the yard and uh, from that one seed came uh, a vine, a big vine with several watermelons on it, uh, full of watermelon seeds. Now, Jesus is saying, just as a seed must die in order to give life uh, and bear fruit, I have to die in order for you to live. He is saying, my death will bring you life. My death will open the door for all people everywhere to have life. You see it, by glorified, he means crucified. And listen, if you're a Christian, then you are the fruit that he's talking about right here. Right here, right now, this farming illustration is about you. And his death on the cross has borne fruit around the world for the last 2,000 years. Now, what he says next is the application of the cross to our lives. This idea of dying in order to live not only applies to Jesus, 
but it applies to us as well. Jesus says, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Uh, Sir, we would like to see Jesus, and Jesus says, if you wanna see me, if you wanna know me for who I really am, if you wanna see me work in your life, you must die. You must die in order to live. What applied to Jesus applies to us. But, but what exactly does Jesus mean when he says, if you love your life, you'll lose it, but if you hate your life in this world, you'll keep it for eternal life? What's that mean? Simply this. To love your life means to live for yourself. To hate your life means to die to yourself. One more time. To love your life means to live your life for yourself. To hate your life means to die to yourself. Now, for years now, uh, we've had a pastor's meeting every other week, and uh, it's, a, it's a good way to, for us to get to know one another, keep getting to know one another, and encourage one another, and to pray together, and to study something together. And right now, we're reading and discussing our way through a book by Paul Tripp entitled, Dangerous Calling. It's a book about confronting the unique temptations that pastors face. And the book is a kind of warning about what can happen when pastors become more concerned about loving their lives and their ministries rather than loving Jesus and truly giving their lives away as servants of Jesus. Now, I have the first edition hardback copy and there are five pastoral endorsements on the back, endorsements by five well-known pastors, prominent pastors across the country when this book was first written. And what's, what's sobering about this is that only two of the five are still faithfully serving in local churches. So it tells me that that this is something that can happen to me, it can happen to any of us. And so the book is really, really good. And a couple of weeks back, we discussed something in the book that I think helps us understand what Jesus is saying here, because it doesn't just apply to pastors, it applies to everyone who's a follower of Jesus. Now, Tripp says, if you're ever gonna be an ambassador, a servant in the hands of God, of a God of glorious and powerful grace, he says, you must die. If you're ever gonna be an ambassador of the glorious grace of God, you've gotta die. Now, I'm gonna read through these things slowly so that they sink in, and I've been reading them myself over and over again. He says, you must die. You must die to your plans for your own life. You must die to your self-focused dreams of success. You must die to your demands for comfort and ease. You must die to your individual definition of the good life. You must die to your demands for pleasure, acclaim, prominence, and respect. You must die to your desire to be in control. You must die to your hope for independent righteousness. You must die to your plans for others. 
You must die to your craving for a certain lifestyle or a particular location. You must die to your own kingship. You must die to the pursuit of your own glory in order to take up the cause of the glory of another. You must die to your control over your own time. You must die to your maintenance of your reputation. You must die to having the final answer and getting your own way. You must die to your unfaltering confidence in you. You must die to the meism inside of you that will again and again cause you to be in the way of whatever God is doing in the moment. You must die. Man. Well, too convicting. Let's move on. Well, now, but we really can't move on, can we? Because what Jesus is telling us here is the key to the Christian life. Jesus did not love his life in this world. He gave up his life. He died for us. He died so we can experience real life, his life. And to follow him means dying as he died. You see that? This is the whole ball game right here. It's why so many Christians don't experience uh, God in their daily lives. It's why we don't experience God as being better than all these other things. It's because we're unwilling to deny ourselves and die in order to live. We have to die to these kinds of things in order to experience the life that Jesus died to make possible for us. And there is no other way to experience it. Now, before you think this is really, really, really too heavy, think of it this way. The call to die is a call to grace. The call to die is really a call to grace. And it's not so much about what we give up. It's about what we gain. Because the truth is, Jesus is calling us to die to what's killing us. Jesus in his grace, is rescuing us and saving us from ourselves. And all of those things that Trip lists off there, they seem like holding tightly to what I want and why I want it and, and when I want it, holding on to those things seems to me like I'm saving my life. But Jesus says, not true. Not true. It's only by dying to those things that you live all those things seem like they move me toward life. They all seem like they would make me happy. But Jesus says, no, they only lead to dissatisfaction and discouragement and frustration and death. You see, the cross is not just about forgiveness and peace with God. The cross is also a call. You let go of your hold on your life. You let go of your plan for your life. You let go of that role you want for your life and you die to all that and you give your life away to serve and follow Jesus. And by the way, this isn't just a one-time call. This is a lifestyle call to every one of God's children. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus puts it in a slightly different way. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, uh, that's Luke 9, 23. And, and so as a husband, I have to deny myself 
and take up my cross and follow Jesus because if I don't do that, I'll destroy my relationship with my wife because of my selfishness. As a parent, I have to deny myself. I've got to take up my cross and follow Jesus in the tough times of parenting. In my finances, I've got to take up my cross and deny myself and follow Jesus. In, in, in my moments of leisure, I have to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus. At school, I have to be willing to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus. At work, I have to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus. That is gospel living, and that is living in the shadow of the cross. Again, again, the life Jesus died to give you cannot be found in any other way. There is no other way. And if you tight-fistedly hold on to your life, your will, your way, your plans, your purposes, you may think you're getting life, but Jesus says you're losing it. So again, the call to die is really a call of grace. It's God saving you from yourself. It's God freeing you from you, from the delusion that there is any possibility for life to be found anywhere but in Christ. Jesus is saying, following me is the only path to life. And we gotta be honest here, Sometimes the path is painful. The call to die sometimes means choosing the painful path. Now, you know this, and my uh, granddaughters, Addie and Nora, and my grandson, Will, and some of their friends have got this little song they put together called The Roller Coaster, and I'm not gonna try to sing that one for you today, but you know that life is like a roller coaster. There are ups and there are downs. There are highs and lows. There's pleasure and pain. Now listen, the distance between where you are and what God has destined for you includes some pain. That's just the truth of it. And how much pain you're willing to endure will determine how far you go with God. Now, some of you are facing great pain right now. For some of you, it's emotional pain. Uh, for some of you, it's financial. For others, it's spiritual. For others, it's physical. For others, it's relational. For some of you, there's something that you want so badly that you can taste it and it's ripping your heart out not to have that thing, and God hasn't given it to you. Life is painful, and it hurts. And when God allows painful times to come, it's his way of maturing us and preparing us to enter into the next season of his will for us. So here's what you need to know as followers of Jesus. Actually, we do not choose pain but we choose God's will even if it includes pain. It's not that we choose pain, we choose God's will even if it includes pain. And isn't that what we see in Jesus right here? And what that means is though for us is when the pain increases in our lives, we have a decision to make. Do I worship comfort or do I worship Christ? If we worship Christ, we will continue to serve him 
and to follow him even in pain. If we worship comfort, we will ultimately end up denying Christ in an effort to alleviate the pain. As Jesus walked the pathway of pain, he said, Father, glorify your name. In other words, Father, use the pain that you're bringing into my life. Use my pain, my suffering, my death to put your glory on display so that at show through my suffering and death, show people what a God of justice and God of love look like. Show everyone how good and great you really are. And that attitude is the path of life. Now, look at it. Jesus isn't just talking about life in this life. He tells us that how we live in the present has future consequences. He says, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So there are two promises here. He says, if you follow me, you'll be where I am. Now, I believe he's talking about heaven there. Uh, Like he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Or when he says in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Uh, um, so he's talking about heaven, but it, it, it applies to this life, of course. Of course it applies to this life. It, 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 he, he's saying that when, as you follow me, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. And you will, in the, in those, on those pathways of pain, you will experience my grace and you'll find it sufficient. So he's He's saying, he's talking about his presence being with us in this life, and then we'll be standing in his presence in the next life. And when we stand in the presence of God in the next life, here's the second promise. He says, my heavenly Father will honor you. Meaning, one day you'll stand before the Father and you'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your salvation. Now, you want to know the truth? This, this is so encouraging. The truth is, everything that you've ever done for Jesus, every act of kindness, every giving of forgiveness, every generous contribution, every thing that you've given up for him, every prayer uttered, every person cared for, every task completed, Jesus says, if anyone serves me in these ways, the Father will honor you. And one day, you and I will stand before God. We're all going to die and stand before God. And Jesus says, on that day, it is possible to hear the Father say, well done, good and faithful servant. Hear me. Your life is eternal. Your serving is eternal. Your following is eternal, and your reward is eternal. To experience it, you have to die in order to live. Now, quickly, now remember the two questions that we began with. First, what do people need to see in Jesus that can make a lasting difference in their life? I mean, think about that. Why is it that some people who come seeking Jesus never find him? 
Why don't they follow through on that, on that prayer that they prayed? Why do they not become followers of Jesus? Here's the answer. There are certain things that are absolutely essential before we can truly know and receive Jesus. Yes, of course, Jesus does give us peace and comfort and hope in the painful times of life. He does promise to never leave us or forsake us, but he doesn't just promise those blessings to people because they're afraid. No, you have to know why he can give you those blessings. You have to know Jesus through the cross. You have to know Jesus through the cross. What you need to see when you want to see Jesus is Jesus dying on the cross for you so you can live, so your sins can be forgiven. Jesus died to take away your sin and your guilt. He died for you in your place because your sin separates you from God. And Jesus shows you his glory, his goodness and his, and his greatness in dying on the cross. And even though he knows all about you, he shows you how much he loves you literally by loving you to death, his death. So the life and peace and comfort and hope that Jesus offers you comes as a result of the cross, as a result of his death for you on the cross. You can't receive those things any other way. So I ask you this morning, what are you doing with the cross of Jesus? And maybe you're out there and you're listening to all this. Maybe you've hung around some Christians, but you know that you're not a believer. Maybe you're not an atheist, but you haven't yet come to the cross and received the forgiveness of your sins. You've not yet run to the cross of Jesus confessing your sin and praying to receive the grace of forgiveness that can only be found in the cross. Maybe you're attracted to little bits of Christianity, like you'd like to have that hope and that peace and that comfort. But you know in your heart of hearts you've never put your faith in Jesus and, 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 and surrendered your life to Christ. Uh, listen, I'm pleading with you now. Don't let this day go by without getting by yourself and confessing your sin to God, casting yourself on the grace of God who died to save you. Get alone by yourself sometime today and tell God that you're trusting Jesus to forgive your sin and to give you the life that he promised that he would give you. Tell God you're trusting Jesus today. Or maybe, maybe you have trusted Christ, you're a believer, but there are places in your life where you're still treating your life as if it belongs to you. Maybe you're doing that in a relationship you know that's not honoring to God. Maybe you're doing that in your thought life where you're going, place, going places in your mind that are not honoring to your Lord. Maybe it's in the way that you speak to your children, not showing them the grace that you yourself have received from God. I call you again to the words of Christ. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. We must follow Jesus to the cross. We live in the shadow of the cross, and that means we have to take up our cross daily and follow him. So if there are places in your life that are no longer surrendered to him, I encourage you to get alone sometime today 
and just start over again. The, the, the cross is not simply comfort, it's a call. The cross is calling to you to take up your cross and follow him. So that second question, what do you and I need to see in Jesus that will make a difference in the way that we live our daily lives? What you need to see and what I need to see each and every day is the cross, the glory of the cross and what Jesus did for us on that cross. What you need to see when you want to see Jesus is that following him means that you have to die in order to live. You have to die in order to experience the life that he died to make possible for you. Listen to Jesus one more time. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world keeps it for eternal life. Yes, the cross is forgiveness and peace and hope and comfort, but the cross is also a call, a daily call to surrender your will to God's will. And in, sowing, in so doing, you have the promise of Jesus that one day when you stand before him, you'll hear your heavenly Father say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a God who loves us even though you know what, uh, <laughs> you know what we are. You know how we wander away from you. You're a God who knows that we sing that you are better than all these things and that we've tasted and seen that you're good. You're a God who, who hears us as we sing those praises to you, but you know that so often we get led astray. But, Father, thank you that the cross brings forgiveness and grace. We know that even though we wander away, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So because of your grace, because of the glory and grace of the cross, Holy Spirit, come. Draw our hearts closer to Jesus and never allow us to lose sight of the fact that each and every day of our lives, we live in the shadow of Jesus' cross. Amen.